It's such a joy to be with you today. Thank you very much for the invitation and for the opportunity to share a notion which has been weighing on my mind and on my heart. When I imagined this sermon, it was with anticipation of holding intention to rather straightforward constructs, utopia and diversity, and weaving them into a logical conclusion. But as is often the case, it became very clear to me that this notion was shared by many others. I found within my first hour's research that these ideas had become globalized, politicized, trivialized, popularized, polarized, deconstructed, and to my thinking, misinterpreted. To start with, I need to narrow the variety of meanings of utopia. Today, I will use the idea of a perfectly functioning society. And that leads us to a critical element in the concept, a hope for perfection and of a perfectible society. Historically, we may remember the idealistic dreams of a city on the hill by the early Puritan settlers of this land, and later the hope voiced by Thomas Jefferson that all citizens of this country would become Unitarians before they died. He, he seemed to think that this would create a religiously homogeneous group any gathering of today's UUs would disprove that dream, right? <laughs> it's been said that asking for opinions from 12 UUs would give you at least 13 responses. <laughs> but it was the sense of human perfectibility that gave rise to many positive responses to the utopian movement that had its heyday in our country in the 19th century. Careful examination shows that many of those who put energy into trying to form such communities were Universalists and Unitarians. Granted, there were many utopian communities formed by other groups, such as Shakers, social reformers, and other idealists. For example, the New Harmony Movement, the Amana Colonies, the Oneida Colonies, the Mormons, the followers of Robert Owen, these and many more made serious and sacrificial efforts to form utopias with a hope of a perfect society. This perfect society was one of peace, of high degrees of education and cooperation, of health and financial independence. This last hope was a reaction to a financial depression such as a desperate one in 1837 in which it was folly to depend on the government of this young nation. The pattern which most of these followed was to form a society of people who were already of a similar mindset with more in common than not. They were largely a homogeneous group of folks. That makes sense, does it not? If I'm going to put my future at risk, I want to be able to trust the folks 
who are invited to join my group, people like myself. Finding some unique universalist standards hard to live out in isolation in 1841, some practical Christians established Hopedale, a utopian village in Milford, Massachusetts. After 10 years, the village had increased to 200 inhabitants, 31 homes, and several business, businesses. Women participated fully in its civic life, but the experiment came to an end because of too few converts and a fiscal crisis. Another of the Universalist's communities was Fruitlands, which only lasted from June 1844 to January 1845. The Unitarians, meanwhile, formed Brook Farm and had interest and encouragement from Emerson and Thoreau and Margaret Fuller and some other well-known Unitarians. George Ripley and his wife Sophia were the instigators of this experiment to promote self-reliance, optimism, individualism, and a regard for external, a disregard for external authority and tradition. Sadly, these lofty notions were not enough to hold the groups of dedicated people together for long. Some of the societies which were primarily based on religious freedom and similar beliefs lasted a number of years, the Shakers, for example, but most failed in a few short years because of the disillusionment of the participants. And here the complexity of such dreams becomes important because current day sociologists suggest that the dream of a homogeneous society in which all are in agreement about the division of labor and rewards is largely impossible. Founders of our nation and of our religious tradition would be at a loss to find a way to even imagine a utopian community in today's world without absolute separation from the world they inhabit. In my research, I found writings in which the writers suggested that the period of 1890 to 1915 was the most progressive segment of our society in terms of women's rights. This was written just before women were able to vote in our country. Imagine that. Those writers would be shocked to see the change world by the end of the 20th century. But we know we have a long way to go as we imagine a diverse utopia. Today, the immigration crisis in Europe, that massive migration from Syrian tyranny, impacts our hospitable societies. It makes us question whether a truly diverse society is possible to say nothing about a diverse utopia. So if the reality of a diverse utopia seems a lost cause, what's the point of imagining such a thing? Well, to start with, it is the ideal which Martin Luther King imagined in his I Have a Dream speech. We treasure that dream with him 
and to debunk it seems to me to be the ultimate in pessimism. We may not have the opportunity to make that dream come true in our lifetime, but it is the basis of much of our work in human rights activism. We are imagining that it is a goal of a well-lived life to work for that dream. By contrast to the dream of our forebears, we do not have to create the opportunity for a utopian community because the opportunity is already here in Peoria, here in our workplaces, where we shop, where we learn, and here in this beloved community. So let us think about how we can further this ideal in our own lives. For example, I will use my own hopes to avoid making unwarranted assumptions that whether you all are sharing my vision. First, I must acknowledge my own resistance to changes that embrace such a concept. Bill's three soul levels were his personal solution to growth. That's why I invited him to share that part of his spiritual journey. And that is what this imagining is about. I must dispense with my own resistance to change, become more tolerant, and relax a rigid standard of traditional behaviors and habits. Rene Descartes said, when someone has offended me, I try to raise my soul so high that the offense cannot reach it. That is a continual effort for me. Second, in place of a band of like-minded fellows, I need a support group. Now, this is such a great concept that I've tapped into it many of those difficult periods of my life. How surprised was I when I found, at the loss of my child, that there was a group of folks who were struggling with the same loss. They willingly met, and by acknowledging their struggle, they gave much needed support to me. Then, when my former husband was struck with Alzheimer's and I was at a loss to know what to do about it, I found a support group. It is an ad hoc relationship and not a utopian community in itself. But if we are struggling, it becomes a lifeline. So what would a support group look like for helping me to hold on to a notion of a diverse, perfectly functioning society? Well, I have to imagine the group. Let's see, we'd meet on Tuesdays at seven o'clock at the UU Church. The group would gather to help each other learn how to create and sustain this construct of a diverse utopia. Our goal is to encourage respect, compassion, curiosity, civility, and creativity. Oh, what shall we call our group? You use. 
What is the diversity we would find in such a community? Like many of life's blessings, diversity is most often valued once it's gone. Here is how it became clear to me. Bill and I found ourselves living in a retirement community when we chose a snowbird home in Mission, Texas. We didn't intend to get involved in the social life as we were just living there to serve a nearby UU fellowship and go birding at the state park next door. But our neighbors in the community were all old, married couples of one man and one woman, retired, middle class, white, snowbirds. They were just like us. Why then did we feel it was not our place? I believe the homogeneous community was dull. <laughs> Fortunately, we did have frequent interaction with our fellowship of people at the UU Church who were of varied ages, many with young children, some LBT, Latino, African-American, nudists, blue-collar, college professors, in a word, diverse. And it was an eye-opening experience, that contrast. We loved the fellowship in Hidalgo County, and uh, we hope to return and visit with them this winter. But we are also fortunate here in Illinois that we have such a diverse community in which we live, in our neighborhood, and in our UU church. Because of these experiences, I have come to believe that this diverse utopia is one we create within ourselves. But it's work and it requires intentional daily effort because there are so many opportunities to do otherwise. It is so easy to seek isolation into social groups and family groups where others look like us and speak our language and know our ways and eat similar food so that we feel secure, just as Amy told the children. <coughs> But to establish ourselves as functioning members of a diverse society, the one we're currently living in, we need to continually grow our souls in new paradigms of loving our neighbor. We will gather that strength, I know. I ask you now to turn in the gray hymnal to the responsive reading number 576 and if you are so moved, to read with me. It is titled, A Litany of Restoration, by Marjorie Bowens Wheatley. 576. If, recognizing the interdependence of all life, we strive to build community, the strength we gather will be our salvation. If you are black and I am white. If you are female and I am male. 
If you are older and I am younger, if you are progressive and I am conservative, if you are straight and I am gay, if you are Christian and I am Jewish, if we join spirits as brothers and sisters, the pain of our aloneness will be lessened, and that does matter. In this spirit, we build community and move toward restoration. May it ever be so, and amen.